0: I was talking with a friend a while back about what seemed like some genuinely intractable relational difficulties. And at the end of the conversation, she asked, frustratingly and rhetorically, wouldn't life be simpler if people were just either good guys or bad guys? And I had to agree, it would. I mean, think about the complexities of our family relationships marriage problems, times that we have felt a sense of betrayal or been reprimanded at work or school, all those times we like to think we're not complicit when we know, down in the quietness of our hearts, that we are. But it'd be a lot simpler if we weren't, (laughs) wouldn't it? Thinking either or, seeing only one side of things, is far simpler and creates way less tension than both and, which requires an ability or at least a desire to see the other side of things. Either or is comfortable because there are good guys and bad guys, and guess which one we are? Whereas both and requires you, requires me, to be self-suspicious, to take the words of Jeremiah about the condition of our hearts seriously and to assume that everyone, everyone gets only part of the story right, including me. Either or is polarizing both and, is partnership. Unfortunately, though, either or is how life has played out naturally in most of the cultures that you and I inhabit. Whether it's building market share or seeking approval from a boss or building a church or deciding how to spend the afternoon, we tend to see things in terms of limited choices and mutually exclusive options. And this this two-dimensional thinking bleeds over from our personal lives as well into our politics and into our theology. We we like to organize things into neat, mutually exclusive categories, Democrat or Republican, environmentalist or capitalist, predestination or free will. And with the And the the current rage, oppressor or oppressed. There are only two categories. And rage seems to be precisely the outcome of this way of neatly sorting the world. Neuroscientists tell us that putting things into hard categories or silos does indeed make life simpler because it gives us nice, clean ever-ready frames for interpreting the world. This comes somewhat naturally uh, because using, I mean, really using our brains takes an enormous amount of energy, relatively speaking. And so our brains tend, kind of, tend toward economy or laziness. In fact, your, your body is wired so that about 90% of what you do every day, you do without any conscious thought at all. Otherwise, your, your head would just explode <laughs> if you had to think about everything. And our lazy brains don't naturally like paradox and complexity. <clears throat> Generally speaking, we have either-or brains, and we like it that way. Well, ironically, God (coughs) created our entire universe absolutely bursting with paradox and complexity, a universe of both and. And we were just discussing this very thing Thursday morning in our men's Bible study, prompted by a writing by G.K. Chesterton about what he called a magical universe. Just as an example, take quantum mechanics and the strange little photon, which about which I know not much. I will just confess to you right now, but which I find utterly fascinating. We probably should have Eddie come up and explain this to us as he did on Thursday morning. But photons make up the beams of sunlight and starlight that stream down on us. And All of their glory. Photons have the properties of both a wave and a particle, though. And by the way, you can't observe them. Because just in the act of observing them, they change. But see, this is all, as any scientist, any good scientist will tell you, is impossible. Because they are mutually exclusive. They're either a wave or a particle. They can't be both. But there they are, anyway, ignoring the physicists. Dancing and sparkling and doing their thing. Without a care. Seems like maybe we've been snookered by nearly everything we've ever learned into an either-or way of life. When there are far far grander opportunities in both end. What what would happen if we just opened our minds and spirits to the possibilities of greater, more creative, and expansive alternatives? I think for sure we would pray more. I feel like we'd take deeper breaths and think higher thoughts about better possibilities. I imagine that we'd Consistently look for better outcomes for everyone, and I believe as Christians we'd see fundamental things like salvation and mission differently. Mm-hmm. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to tread off into heresy, but theologically, at least I hope not. Um, you'll keep me out of that. If he starts to make a face, just let me know. <laughs> Theologically, the verses that we read today from Isaiah center around themes of salvation and mission. And so naturally, we want to ask the question, what are we being saved from if they're about salvation from God's punishment, from the devil, from our own sins, from death? For many Christians today, when you mention salvation, it means one thing, one thing only. Having my sins forgiven, So I can get into heaven. You've all seen the bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect. They are just what? Just forgiven. Really? Is that that all you are? Just Mm -hmm. forgiven? doesn't leave much for what we're saved to, does it? idea of having my sins forgiven so that I can get into heaven is just kind of a way of answering all four of the questions that I just asked with incredible simplicity, right? We're we're saved from God's punishment by going to heaven and not to hell, from death by being alive and not dead, from sin and the devil, neither of which has power in heaven. This is, uh, again, what Dallas Willard would call kind of bumper sticker Christianity. And if it fits on a bumper sticker, it's just... Probably not good. (laughs) The real problem with this narrow way of thinking, though, about salvation is that it necessarily leads to a narrowing of our mission in the world, solely to the work of getting as many people as possible into heaven. Even in more liberal Christian traditions that tend to think much more broadly about exactly who will be saved— there's still a tendency to describe salvation in otherworldly terms. That is, who will be saved equates with who gets into heaven. In contrast to this, Isaiah challenges us to some complexity. To also name salvation as a quality of life, here and now, that reflects God's desires for humanity, and that radically reshapes mission. What is salvation and mission in Isaiah 61? It is good news for the poor. It's binding up the brokenhearted. It is liberty to the captives and release to those who are bound. It's the year of the Lord's favor, a reference to the year of jubilee, the year in which debts debts were wiped away, slaves were freed, Fields were allowed to rest, and property rights were enforced. In other words, property would go back to its original owners. We find that in Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy 15. Salvation is imaged here both as a restored city in verse 4 and as an abundant garden in verse 11. The nations of the world will see what God has done for Israel and will know that they are the offspring of the Lord That the Lord has blessed. This recognition by the other nations reaffirms that Isaiah's vision of what salvation means is not just a promise of pie in the sky by and by. God's deliverance is also real, tangible, and this worldly. It can be seen and felt by others. I believe this is why Proverbs 11.10 insists that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Though Christians rightly think the promises of the new Jerusalem as having a fulfillment in the end of time, which it will, we must not lose sight of the ways in which God's salvation is meant to transform the world here and now. Christians are invited to participate in this kind of eternal living now, even in the midst of a world not fully redeemed. So if salvation is not just Another time and place, but also the reality of this world more in line with the way that it ought to be, then Isaiah asks us to think about how we might participate in ushering in what, theologically speaking, can only be called the real world. Somewhat parenthetically, I want to be really explicit here on two points. First, God and God alone builds his kingdom. But God ordered the world in such a way that his own work within that world takes place through human beings who reflect his image into that world. That, I believe, is central to the notion of being made in God's image and the fundamental aspect of human vocation. God intends his wise, creative, loving presence and power to be reflected into the world through us. He's enlisted us to act as heirs and stewards in this project of creation, the way things ought to be. And following the disaster of the fall, the coming of rebellion and corruption, he has built into the gospel message the fact that through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he equips humans to help in the work of getting that project back on test, back on track. So God builds his kingdom, but he invites us to be with him in that work. Second, we must always distinguish between the final kingdom and our present imaginings of it on earth. The final coming together of heaven and earth, God's supreme act of new creation, for which the only real prototype other than the first creation itself is the resurrection of Jesus. God alone will reconcile all things to himself in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. He alone will make the new heavens and the new earth. It would be the height of folly to think that we could possibly assist in that greater greater work. But what we can do and must do in the present if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Holy Spirit is to build for that kingdom. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, whatever we do in the Lord is not in vain. I love something that N.T. Wright wrote in his book, Surprised by Hope, because he comments on this passage, and this is what he says. You've, you've probably heard it before. You've likely heard it from me before. <clears throat> But he says this, you are not oiling the wheels on a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are strange though it may seem and almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's New World. Remember, I pointed to last week some words of, of, of J.R. Tolkien about everything sad coming untrue, and, mm-hmm. and C.S. Lewis saying that what we don't understand is that is that when we reach heaven, salvation actually works backward into the world to make everything to reconcile everything. N.T. Wright goes on, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and the light and the beauty of creation, every minute spent teaching a severely <coughs> handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and of course every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, Every deed that promotes the gospel embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will someday make. That is the logic of the mission of God. Now, according to what we read in Isaiah, mission happens when God's people turn their attention to those who are named as recipients of the good news, the poor, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, the mournful, the faint of spirit, and the bereft of hope. This passage reveals God's intense concern for the lowest And the weakest in order to participate in God's mission of restoration, the people of God are sent first to those who need to see and hear that God will provide for them and will redeem their loss. Mission is not primarily something that goes out from God's people by sending money or sending missionaries, but something that defines God's people as existing for the sake of the oppressed and the brokenhearted, the, the imprisoned, and the mournful. In this passage, mission also happens when the nations of the world notice that the people of God not just take moral stands, as vital as those can be, but actually live differently, that they are indeed a people whom the Lord has blessed, in verse 9. Twice we're told here. That the nations will notice the blessing of Israel. <clears throat> a restored Israel living as a jubilee community would stand as a sign of God's blessing to the nations around it. Kind of a, a sacramental enacting of the salvation toward which it points. To be missional is to live as people of good news, liberation, justice, and comfort in such a way that the world may take notice and be drawn to the God to which all of it points. And it is pointing to something magnificent. That is why we must always read Isaiah and the rest of the Old and the New Testaments through the birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The best picture that I can give you of it is the album cover. <laughs> For Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon. The prism. Which reflect, which refracts light into all of its all of its dimensions, all of its glory, all of its color. This is what Jesus does to Old Testament prophecy. This is what Jesus does to the rest of the New Testament. This is what Jesus does to the dietary laws of the Old Testament and the the cleanliness laws and all of those things. We read those through Jesus. Some things he left as they were. Some things he did away with. Some things he intensified. And we cannot help but note the significance of Isaiah 61 as the description of Jesus' own mission in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, to be (coughs) the one who brings good news and healing and release. As we walk through the last days of Advent, we will remember not just that Jesus came, but why Jesus came, to usher in a jubilee celebration that would never end, eternal life to be sure, but eternal life that begins here and now. Jesus was no mere earthly king or prophet, however great, even one called and marked out by God to bring justice to oppressed people. He was the word that was with God in the beginning and was God. For us, it means that that what that, that what might be called the social gospel is just not enough. That no amount of good work or political or social reform will ever adequately express saving faith in Jesus Christ. Redeemers' shared vision is to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. And we must always hold in tension the fundamental necessity of incarnating our own salvation, promoting the gospel by our sacrificial good work, while also never, ever shrinking from vigorously proclaiming the gospel, the elemental truth that abundant and eternal life (laughs) can be had simply through faith in Jesus Christ. To say amen, that would have been the time. <laughs> <Amen. laughs> not that I'm fishing for it. Go ahead. <laughs> Promoting and proclaiming, they are not exclusive. They're integral. It's not either or. It's both and. The claims we make about Jesus are greater than any good work can ever express, but good news for the poor is the sign that Messiah has come. That's one of the reasons why we, it's a small thing, but one of the reasons why we make 150 or so lunches the second Sunday of the month. This month, the third Sunday. Today, after church, we'll be doing that downstairs. It's one of the reasons why we've partnered with Cape St. Clair, United Methodist Church, and Broadneck Baptist Church to um, work in winter relief, which you can read about in the back of your bulletin. These are... Marks of the gospel and the difference that it's making in us. So the Old Testament lesson for today does not stand alone, but as the passage that Jesus actually read and applied to himself when he was asked to read and teach at the synagogue in his hometown, this is what he said. The scroll, this is what it says in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was very similar to the way Jesus confirmed to John the Baptist that he was indeed the one who was to come. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John. What you hear and see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. You know, we can kind of look at these and and, and put them into these Unhelpful silos of, well, you know, Jesus did spiritually fulfill those things, obviously. But actually, Jesus, when he was talking to John's disciples, could actually point to people that he had healed. People that he had freed. People that he had brought into wholeness. So, spiritual, material, corporeal, they're not really all that helpful as categories to us. Makes it simpler. Gets us off the hook. The justice for the poor and the oppressed is the sign to a hurting world that Messiah has come and will come. But the truly good news is that to which the sign points. Jesus Christ himself, the one, the only one who can do all that needs to be done for humanity, both now and in eternity, has come and will come. He is the very presence of God himself, the one whom John the Baptist looked at, and we will join with today when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thanks be to God. (laughs) And <laughs> am